So. Okay, just a minute. We're gonna be looking today at what I call the Mazot principle. It's something that grabbed my attention in 1990. And I've been teaching about it periodically ever since. It's found in our Torah reading and in other places in Torah. The Mazot principle, living to raise the right questions. Here's some examples of the Mazot principle. We saw some of them in today's Torah reading. Jewish householders were admonished to put blood on their doorposts as a yearly reminder of the redemption from Egypt. That blood on the doorpost is meant to raise the question, why do we do this? This is a very strange action. It happens once a year, and it's a weird thing to do, putting blood on your door. And it's meant to raise the question, mazot, what is this? Why do we do it? But that's not the only place we find it. We find uh, that uh, firstborn sons and firstborn animals had to receive special treatment in Jewish life. Firstborn sons, we go through a ceremony called Pidyon Haben, where we redeem back our firstborn sons because our firstborn sons belong especially to God because of his redemption of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So we do this strange ceremony of giving uh, the equivalent of $5 in silver to a Kohen uh, uh, as, as, as a reminder of the uh, firstborn in Egypt. And there you begin to get the idea of the Mazot. The Mazot principle on the one hand raises the question, what's going on here? And on the other hand, these, uh, these, uh, these ceremonies are pointing a finger at something that should not be forgotten. But there are other examples. Here's one. Jews were told to wear tefillin, which is kind of weird. Leather boxes tied on our arm and uh, between our eyes. And in these tefillin, there are scripture passages which include the Exodus. And we're told to wear these so as not to forget these saving acts. But again, the mazot part of it is that when you do it, it looks strange. And people say, what are you doing? I heard a story. This is not a funny story, but it is funny in a way that some re religious Jews were on an airplane and uh, it came time to daven, came time to pray. So these religious Jewish men went to the back of the plane and they take their tefillin out and they're wrapping their arms and their heads. And some woman on the plane <laughs> who doesn't know a Jew from an Arab thought that they were terrorists doing something. Uh, so uh, she certainly said mazot. But my point is, is that here in scripture, we have over and over again, this, uh, this rhythm of doing something that is strange in order to raise attention and ask, why is this? What's going on? And when we do that, then it gives us an occasion to explain the mighty deeds of God. Here's another example. Matzah is eaten during the Passover season each year. Uh, now, why do we do that? Why do we eat the, the matzah? My son told me that he likes matzah. A lot of people <laughs> endure matzah. But the question is, it raises a question. Why do we do this? And we're going to get back to that in a moment. It's another one of these 
Monzo principles, uh, uh, examples of the Monzo principle. The leaven, leaven is removed from our houses during Passover week. Jewish housewives go through a special cleaning regimen where they're getting rid of not dirt, they're getting rid of leaven. Why do we do that? Mazot, what is this? Here's another example. 12 stones, when, when many years after the Exodus, uh, when Joshua, 40 years later, is leading the Jewish people into the land of promise, he, he has them take 12 large stones from the midst of the Jordan as a memorial monument to Israel's passing through. We read this, the people of Israel did just as Yehoshua had ordered. They took 12 stones out of the Yardane riverbed, as Adonai had said to Yehoshua, corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel, carried them over with them to the place where they were camping and set them down there. What is this? Mazot, what is this? Yehoshua also set up 12 stones in the Yardane River itself in the place where the feet of the Kohanim carrying the Ark of the Covenant had stood. They are there to this day. And again, the whole point of this is to raise curiosity, and in answer to that curiosity, you declare the wonderful works of God. So here again, the purposes of the Mazod principle. In each case, the behavior or the artifact serves as a memorial of the saving acts of God and as an occasion for the next generation to ask, Mazot, what is this? What do you do it? These unusual behaviors were meant to stimulate curiosity and create an opportunity to tell the next generation of the mighty acts of God uh, for and among his people. Let's see. Okay, this is why, by the way, we should fight against cultural assimilation and religious indifference by maintaining behaviors that are peculiar to our heritage as God's people, as Jewish people. We should fight against the urge to abandon these things because these behaviors remind us and others of our particular history with God, continuing to honor him. We had a Seder last night, and we're going to have a Seder again tonight. And at the Seder, uh, the youngest at the table usually asks four questions. And these four questions are asking, really, mazot, what is this? Why is this night different from all other nights? Why do we do these different things? There are four things that are mentioned in the four questions. And other nights, we don't dip our food uh, even once, tonight we dip them twice. Why? On all of the nights we eat any kind of bread, tonight we eat only matzah. Why? Mazot. On all of the nights we eat any kind of herbs, why on tonight do we eat only bitter herbs? And again, it's mazot. What is this? And in each case, the explanation gives us a chance to talk about redemption. If you don't know how that works, come tonight to our Seder, and you'll understand that better. Fourthly, on all of the nights, we eat either sitting up or reclining, but on this night, we're supposed to recline. Why? So there's the Mazot principle in the midst of Passover. Now, this is not just about Passover. This is about how you and I live our lives. We're going to get to that in a moment. But first, I want us to look at four ways in which people can respond 
to these unusual signs from God that are meant to point us towards his redemption. And the Jewish Haggadah, the Passover liturgy, talks about this in terms of four sons. This is a quote from the Jerusalem Talmud about the four sons and about each of the sons. Rabbi Chia taught, corresponding to four sons did the Torah speak, a wise son, an evil son, an innocent son, and a son who doesn't know enough to ask. So what does the wise son say? He looks at all these, these uh, statutes and ordinances. He looks at all these mazot rituals. What does he say? What are these testimonies, statutes, and judgments that the Lord our God has commanded us? He's, he's asking curiously. And accordingly, you will say to him, with strength of his hand, did the Lord take us out of Egypt from the house of slaves? For that son, for the wise son, who was genuinely curious, who says, what is this supposed to mean to us? What you do is you give him an explanation. That's what the Haggadah is. It's an explanation. But what about the wicked son? He'll say, hey, dad, what is this stuff you're doing? What is this, this, this act of worship to you? He excludes himself. He says, why is this? What is this to you? What is this toil that you have made us toil each and every year? Now, since he excluded himself from the collective, accordingly, you say to him, <clears throat> for the sake of this, did the Lord do this for me? For me, did he do this? And not for that man, not for you, sonny boy. If that man had been there, he would not have been worthy of ever being saved from there. If you exclude yourself, if you don't look at the acts of God's redemption as really having anything to do with you, if you just kind of just point a finger, then when it comes time for redemption, God figures up, oh, this guy doesn't take this stuff seriously. That's the wicked son. Third son is the innocent or naive son. He, what does the naive, innocent son say? He says, what, what is this? He, he doesn't understand. He says, what is this? And accordingly, you will teach him the laws of the Pesach sacrifice, for example, talking about how we may not eat afikoman or dessert or other foods eaten after the meal, after we have finished eating uh, the Passover sacrifice, so that a person should not get up from, eat, from eating group to, to another eating group. I won't go into that. That's, that's deep kind of halachic talk. But the point is, the innocent son, who, who just doesn't understand, uh, but he's willing to understand, to that son, you can explain to him even the minutiae of, of Passover, because he really wants to know. You know, it's very important. One of the most important things in life in order to learn is knowing that you don't know. There are many people who don't learn very much because they don't know that they don't know. The innocent son knows that he doesn't know. And therefore, you can make a lot of progress with him. The fourth son, who doesn't even know how to ask, this son is really, uh, really more than naive. This son is, is innocently clueless. Regarding the son who doesn't know to ask, you will open the conversation for him first. 
you'll you, you will initiate it because he doesn't even know enough to be curious about it. So you need to initiate the conversation yourself. Rabbi Yosef said, the Mishnah said, uh, and if the son has no understanding in order to ask a question, his father teaches him to ask. So for that son, the fourth son, uh, who doesn't know enough to ask, you help him to be curious. This is four ways in which we deal with matters of redemption. We deal with it wisely, where we say, what is this supposed to mean to me? We deal with it wickedly by saying, why do you people do this? We deal with it uh, innocently, uh, where we, we don't really know, but we, we're really curious and we're willing to be taught. And even there are some of us who, who can't, do, do, there are other people we will meet who don't even initiate a conversation, not because they're malicious, not because they're opposed, but because they've never really thought of that. But those people, as in sharing our Yeshua faith, we help to open the conversation by helping to create curiosity in them. By the way, these four sons are an excellent example in teaching people about faith sharing, but that's another, that's for another Bible study. Robert Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory has a really interesting perspective on this. He says that it may be that the four sons are not different people, but successive stages in the development of a child. <laughs> He's so brilliant. We begin by being unable to ask. We accept the world as given. The next stage in intellectual growth is curiosity. That's one with a simple nature. And we ask questions with no ulterior motive. We just want to learn. And this is often followed by a period of testing and challenging the values we have received. This is the wicked son or the adolescent. The Hebrew word for adolescent, na'ar, also means uh, shake off. The teenage years are ones where we develop our own identity by putting received values to the test. This comes, uh, this, uh, this can sometimes lead to rebellion as a form of self-exploration. And then finally, the culmination of cognitive growth, the rabbi says, is wisdom. That's the point at which we have internalized the values of our heritage and are sufficiently mature to see that they have objective merit. Although the Haggadah uses the word wise, rabbinic tradition preferred the phrase tamid chacham, a wise disciple. Okay, so he says, we can look at these four uh, sons as indicative of four stages of growth. I would say not just chronologically in terms of childhood to adulthood, but I think each one of us is one of these four sons at one time or another. And we need to grow from being a person who doesn't know enough to ask, totally uninterested in this stuff. Uh, we need to grow from being a person who, uh, who doesn't know, but knows he doesn't know. We need to grow certainly from being a person who's in rebellion against the things of God's redemption. And we need to continually grow in wisdom. We need to continually have curiosity about what it is which we believe. We need to 
not say, well, I've been there, done that. I received Yeshua in 1946, so leave me alone. That's not good. We need to constantly be curious. So what should be our mazot behaviors as people of God? What should there be in our lives that causes people to say, what's this? What's going on here? This is an important question. Should it be how we dress? Um, with all due respect to Amish people and uh, uh, old order Mennonites uh, and Hasidim, uh, you can spot a Hasid um, uh, from across the street because of how Hasidim dress. Uh, should it be the way we dress that makes us stand out, that raises the mazot, perhaps? Should it be how we vote? Right now, in some circles, there are all, there's only one way to vote and be judged to be a servant of God. Is that the way it should be? Is that how people should recognize us? Is that what should raise the question? What's this? Should it be who we hate? There are some circles where camaraderie is developed around who we oppose. Is that what should, what should raise people's curiosity? Why do these people dislike this people so much? Is that what should characterize us? Is it our hot button issues that should identify us as the people of God? That therefore people say, oh, I know what he believes because he doesn't like this, he doesn't like that, he doesn't like that. Uh, he's a fanatic about this. Is that what should characterize us? These are good questions. What should be our mazot behaviors as people of God? Here's what scripture says. It says, for example, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of being wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. We should be people of honorable behavior. We should be people of compassion, of ethics. Uh, that's as, that is what should make people say, you know, what is this? What is this with this guy? What is this with this girl? What should characterize us is living so as to provoke questions that occasion answers that bring relatable and credible honor to God. I'll say it again. We should live in a way that provokes questions that give us an occasion to give relatable and credible honor to God. That's the Mazot principle. Uh, it, it causes people to, to, when we explain ourselves, it brings glory to God. It doesn't bring glory to God by explaining to people why we vote for this party or the other party. I don't, I don't believe that that is what attracts people to our faith or why we, why, why we, you know, I've met people uh, who on Facebook, uh, they imagine that every Muslim in the world is out to cut off your head. This is ignorance, of course, but, but, the, but if, you don't, if you don't think the same way, then they consider you to be a defective believer. Is that the way we should be? No. 
We should live so as to provoke questions that occasion answers that bring relatable and credible honor to God. People can't relate to that stuff. Yeshua said this. He said, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What is the saltiness that should characterize us that causes people to say, mazot? It's an important question. Yeshua goes on, he uses another metaphor, light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your politics? No. Who you hate? No. How you dress? No. So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's an interesting quotation. Christianity served, this is about how early believers affected the Roman world and turned the Roman world upside down. Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent problems. To cities filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fire, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. Rodney Stark. Are we making life more tolerable for other people, vulnerable people, for the stranger, for the poor, for the orphans, for the widows, for the sick? Uh, are we making life more tolerable uh, for, for others? Are we improving life for other people? This is, if we're not doing that, then the kind of mazot that we raise is not going to be very positive because people will see how we behave and they'll say, well, you know, I don't vote that way, nor I don't hate those people like they do. That's not good. So the question is, how will we commend our faith to others? Is it how we vote, who we hate, our hot button issues, how we live, living before others as images of Messiah? Paul's succinct mission statement, which is really where all of this comes down. For what we are proclaiming is not ourselves, not our politics, not our, not our hot button issues, 
For what we are proclaiming is not ourselves or these things, but the Messiah Yeshua as Lord, with ourselves as your servants because of Yeshua. Wow. What a concept. Mazot. My friends, it is not hard to turn the world upside down. We need to be part of God's heavenly counterculture. We need to reflect the values, the compassion, the goodness of our Messiah and his kingdom. If we do that, people will become very curious about us. I close with a story. I mentioned the Amish people and the Mennonites earlier. It must be about seven years ago or so, in Amish country, there was a, uh, a man, I think it was a postman, who kidnapped a bunch of, uh, of young Amish children, maybe 10, 11, 12 years old. I don't remember how many there were, but it was, it was maybe 10 or 13 of them. He had them in a school and he killed them. What happened next? The parents of these children went to the parents of this man to comfort her, to comfort them. I remember the media was dumbfounded. Nobody knew what to say. The New York Times did not. The whole world stood in astonished awe that these people at the worst time in their lives when their innocent, pure little children had been killed by this guy, their first impulse was to go and be of comfort to his parents. That is a mazot. When we live in a way that is contrary to people's expectations in a good way, it creates tremendous curiosity. Or we can live like religious weirdos and, and partisans and then people also uh, notice us, but not in a way that brings glory to God. So may God help us that we might live mazot lives in the year ahead. Amen. Amen. Okay, my friends. <clears throat>